0: He is risen, amen? Amen. He is risen indeed, he is risen indeed. Today, as we gather here to worship the resurrected Christ, roughly 2.2 billion Christians gather around the world this morning to worship Jesus just like we are doing. This, what we are celebrating here this morning, what we just sang about, what we're going to talk about for the next few minutes, uh, we are going to remember this morning. This is the most uh, historically life-altering, soul-shattering, cataclysmic event that has ever occurred, ever. Uh, this, it doesn't matter if this is your first time ever coming to church, uh, if you come every single Sunday, or if you haven't been here since Christmas or last Easter, this is the central event in all of human history. And this is one of the most important things that the Christian church regularly celebrates. In fact, the the scriptures go so far as to say that the resurrection of Jesus, this is the hinge point of everything that the Christian believes. Uh, That unlike other religions, other worldviews, we don't have buildings or temples that we must go to uh, to worship, we don't have religious artifacts that we must preserve, we don't have religious teachings that we must adhere to. We have one thing and one thing only that we stand on and that we claim is the one thing that defines what we believe and who we follow, and that is the resurrection of Jesus. And on a morning like this morning, perhaps. Uh, The most important question you could ask is why does this matter? This morning I sat in Starbucks as I always do on a Sunday morning. But for whatever reason this morning, I just sensed that uh, my, my eyes were seeing things differently. My heart was feeling things differently as I was reflecting on the things that I was going to share this morning. And I was looking around in Starbucks and I thought to myself, These people don't know. They don't care. It doesn't make sense. They see me there every Sunday morning. At 6 a.m. on a Sunday morning, it's the same people that go to the same coffee shops every week. It's only the weird people uh, that do things like this. And the only thing that would have been different from this Sunday uh, for them, looking at me, is that I'm wearing a jacket. They, They wouldn't have noticed anything different. I'm in the corner. I'm eating my oatmeal. I'm working on my sermon. Only this week, I'm wearing a jacket. And I thought to myself, what a tragedy What a tragedy that these people do not understand how important Easter is. It means nothing to them. It means nothing to them. And so the question we must ask this morning is, why is this so significant? Why is this so important? And to help make the case or to help us understand this, I want to quote the great theologian Hugh Hefner. He was asked in an article, what do you believe happens after death? And here is his response. He says, I haven't a clue. I'm always struck by the people who think they do have a clue. It's perfectly clear to me that religion is a myth. It's something that we've invented to explain the inexplicable. My religion and the spiritual side of my life come from a sense of connection to the humankind. Sorry, it's really hard for me to read that without laughing. I don't know about you, but I'm getting lectured here by Hugh Hefner on his connection to the humankind. Oh my gosh. Uh, (laughs) I'll keep going. And nature on... This planet and in universe, uh, in the universe, sorry. I'm in overwhelming awe of it all. It's so fantastic, so complex, so beyond comprehension. What does it all mean if it has any meaning at all? But how can it all exist if it doesn't have some kind of meaning? I think anyone who suggests that they have the answer is motivated by the need to invent answers because they have no such answer. Now, I never thought I would say this in a sermon, and I hope this doesn't get me fired. But I think Hugh Hefner's right if what he's saying about our need to find explanations for the mystical and the ambiguity in life and wrestle with what it means to truly be human and uh, what, it, what what life after death looks like, if all that ambiguity and, and all that tension that we feel there puts us in this place where we must then make up answers, create myths, tell stories, invent legends, if all that is, if that's all the resurrection is, then Hugh Hefner's right. It's foolish. It has no meaning. And, and don't, don't miss what he's saying here, because I think he makes a tragic error. Whoa. <laughs> I think he makes a tragic error, one that is so common amongst those who are skeptical Uh, Those who might identify as atheists, those who might identify as what I call SBNR, spiritual but not religious, kind of the West Coast Canadian person who's sort of spiritual and their God is nature. They essentially boil down all worldviews, all ideologies, all thoughts to this idea that everyone has faith in something and those who have religious faith, it's more or less just a blind faith. There's no real, real good reason for them to have the faith that they have and the things that they have. Uh, faith in and, and if if what Hef- Hugh Hefner's saying is that's the case, in order to follow Jesus and believe in Jesus and believe in the resurrection, you have to have blind faith. Then you know then the rest of life is meaningless. He's actually right. The Apostle Paul goes so far as to say this himself in First Corinthians chapter fifteen, which is the text we're going to be in this morning. If you have a Bible, grab it. Go to First Corinthians fifteen. Open up a Bible app on your phone. But these verses will be on the screen. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in First Corinthians chapter fifteen. Picking up in verse 17, he says, if Christ has not been raised, so if Jesus Christ has not been raised from uh, the dead, if what we are celebrating this morning, if it's a myth, just like Hugh Hefner says, if this is something that a bunch of guys got together in a back room somewhere and just invented because they thought it would be a nice idea, if it's all a myth, if it didn't actually occur, look at what he says, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. In other words, everything we sang isn't true. Everything we believe as Christians it's not true. Everything we're going to talk about this morning, it's not true. And really, if that's the case, then we should just close up shop, go home, have a sandwich, take a nap, go walk Fido on the beach, and just enjoy the sunshine. Because this would be a really dumb way to spend a really nice Easter Sunday morning if none of it's true. It's meaningless. This would be foolish. And then he goes on to say in verse 18, he says, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. In other words, We believe that one of the implications of the resurrection are that when we die, just as Christ was raised, we too will be raised. And what he's saying is that there's no point to life because there's nothing that happens after life. In other words, we're just a bunch of neurons bouncing around and your life is more or less just a cosmic accident that has no consequence. And so what what Hefner's saying here, he's actually agreeing with the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Paul is agreeing with Hugh Hefner and it's going to get dark. I think it's every time I say his name. Something bad happens, which should tell you something <laughs> then he says this in verse 19, and I don 't think this will be on the screen. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all uh, we of all people, we are, are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, how foolish, how silly for us to give all of our lives to something that is a lie, something that is a myth, something that isn't real, something that we, we just made up because we couldn't sleep at night thinking that this is all there was to life. But here's the beautiful reality of what we're here to celebrate this morning. Here's the beautiful reality of what Christianity teaches, what the Apostle Paul is going to lay out for us this morning. is that We're not called. We're not asked. The invitation this morning to you, to all of us, is not to have blind faith. It's not to invent silly myths about what may or may not happen after we die, about how we got here, about the way the world works and the way that God designed us to be. That's not the ask. Faith, yes, but not blind faith. Faith in an event. Faith in something that either did or did not happen. Faith in the resurrection. See, this morning, the claim is Jesus did indeed rise. But the question is, did Jesus, did he, was he raised from the dead? Tim Keller, who we quote often said this about the resurrection of Jesus. He said, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. See, if Jesus did rise, then what he said about himself is indeed true. We have to at least deal with the reality of who Jesus claimed to be. If he didn't rise, if it's just a myth, then all of it is meaningless. Just like the Apostle Paul said, just like Hugh Hefner said, it's inconsequential. It's just a myth. It's just something we made up. But if he did rise, if he was raised from the dead, then there are implications, that we have to wrestle with, that we have to deal with. And so what I want to do this morning, what, what, what I want us to press into is asking and answering the question, did Jesus actually, was he raised from the dead? And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 actually lays out for us a case by which we can, we can test the claims of Christianity. And this is one of the things I absolutely love about the way that the Bible lays out the case for Jesus is it actually lays out the case for the resurrection of Jesus in such a way, not that it asks you just to have blind faith. Faith, yes, but faith in an event, faith in a fact, faith in something that did or did not happen. Because what the Apostle Paul is going to do here is he's going to actually give us a historical argument for the resurrection of Jesus. And then it's up to us to decide if we believe the case that the Apostle Paul is making. And so if The resurrection of Jesus didn't occur. If it's not real, if it didn't happen, then the rest of Christianity goes by the wayside. But if it did, if he was indeed raised, if 2.2 billion people who are worshiping the resurrected Christ this morning are actually worshiping the resurrected Christ, then there are implications, and we must indeed deal with them. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, picking up in verse 3, the apostle Paul says this, For what I passed on to you, for what I passed on to you as of first importance. So the Apostle Paul is about to lay out for us something that he describes as of first importance. Now in First Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul is making, an, an, the entire chapter is him making a treatise or him, him defending the resurrection of Jesus to a group of people who are skeptical about Christ's resurrection. He's writing a letter to a church that were unsure of what they believed about the, the resurrection. So the Apostle Paul here in 1 Corinthians 15, is he's pleading with this group of people to believe the gospel, to believe in the resurrection. And he starts by saying, I'm going to give you what's of first importance. I want you Think about this for a second. If you were going to write a letter to a group of people and you were going to start by writing what was of first importance, like what would you write about? Like yesterday I filled up my car with gas and I would probably go like is there a way to get around the whole carbon tax thing because $2 a liter just ain't working for me, right? Like in first importance, like maybe there's a way to end world hunger or human suffering or, 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 or maybe there's a way by the grace of God that we could actually watch YouTube videos and text at the same time. Like, I don't know how we haven't figured this out. These are important issues, right, that we want solutions to. But the Apostle Paul doesn't start there. Sorry, that was, I was just kidding. Here's what he says is of first importance. Look at what he says, second half of verse 3, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. The Apostle Paul says this is the most important thing, that Jesus Christ died on the cross. Now, why is this the most important thing? Well, it's the most important thing because if you understand who Jesus is, Jesus was God with skin on. He was the God man. And he came from heaven to earth in pursuit of people. He came and lived a perfect life, the life that you and I should have lived. He came to live the life that God designed all people to live, but that we all fall short of. And the reason he did it was so that he could display to us what it truly meant to be, what it truly means, rather, to be human. He wanted to put that on display so we could see the ways that God intended us to live. But when we look at the life and ministry of Jesus and the way he lived and the things that he taught, we recognize that we all fall short in some way, shape, or form. We all do things that we know we shouldn't do, but we also don't do things that we know we should do. And so if we're honest, if we're real, and if we wrestle with that, we we believe we're good people, but we actually know we're not good people. We actually know that there's a sense of brokenness in us, that there's something that is wrong with the human condition. You don't have to look very far to really come to terms with this reality. Just look outside. Look around our world. Look at the things that are on the news. Look at the things that we encounter every single day. There is human suffering that could be solved. There's brokenness in our own neighborhoods that we could do something about that we don't. There's orphans that live in our city and we have extra bedrooms. All of this is evidence to the fact that we are indeed broken. Because we do not live up to the ways that Jesus lived because he lived a perfect life. But he didn't just live a perfect life. He didn't just live a perfect life and then say, live like me, be like me, live up to my example. Because he also went to the cross and that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. That Jesus Christ loved us so much. That he didn't just sit up in heaven and said, be better, try harder, do more. How come you're not religious enough? Why don't you go to church every week? Why is the last time you were in church last Easter? Why didn't you dress as nice as Chris dressed? Why are you such a jerk? Why don't you love your neighbor? Why don't you do more good stuff? He didn't do that. He came from heaven to earth. He entered into the brokenness. Think about this. The God that spoke the universe into existence came down demonstrated it for us, the ways that we are supposed to live, but then also died for us on the cross, taking all of our sin, taking all of our brokenness, taking all of our shame. And the way we talk about this here at West Village is that he died the death we deserve to die. That we we deserve death because of the brokenness, because of our sin, because of our rebellion, because of our treason against God, because of the ways that we don't even think about God, don't even love God, don't even look to God. And while there's a sense in which that's hard to hear, there's a reality that we have to, we have to, I want you to feel this with me this morning, that God actually loves you. That's a demonstration of his love for you, that he didn't leave us. He didn't leave you. He didn't leave me in our brokenness. He didn't just sit up in heaven and say, get up here, try and figure it out. But he came in, he rolled up his sleeves, he entered into the frailty and the brokenness of humanity, and he says, listen, I know you can't, so I will. I know you can't do it, so I will do it for you. I know you can't measure up, so listen, here's a gift, my righteousness, my goodness, my perfect life for you, my death in your place for your sins, for your brokenness. And so if you hear nothing else this morning, if this is all new, you haven't heard this before, some of these words don't make sense to you, here's what I want you to hear. Here's what I want you to feel. God loves you. God loves you so much that he would actually lay down his life for you. And it's good news. And so the Apostle Paul says Christ died according to the scriptures, for our sins. Then he says this in verse 4, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. As we've already said, this is the central claim of of the Christian teaching. This is the central claim of the Christian religion, that if Jesus Christ was still uh, in the tomb, that if we could go visit him, if there was an artifact somewhere in his body was in there, then the rest of Christianity would go by the wayside. But the the reality is, the claim that the Apostle Paul is going to make here is that that's not where the story ends. That the Spirit of God actually breathed life into Jesus, brought him back from the dead, and that he was raised. And as Tim Keller said, and as the the Apostle Paul is going to plead with us this morning, and as I'm going to plead with us this morning to come to to this place where we would actually believe that if this is indeed true, then the implications of what Jesus also said are true. That it's not just a nice historical fact that there was a guy named Jesus. He died on a cross and came back to life. But that there's a God who loves you. There's a God who cares about you. There's a God who made you and wants to know you. And him sending Jesus, that is his way of screaming to you that he is real, that he loves you, that he wants to know you. And so we need to wrestle with whether this event actually occurred. Now the Apostle Paul is going to go on to make some claims about how we can actually know that this event happened. Look at what he says next in the second half of verse 4. So he says Jesus died, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. And then he uses this little phrase to describe the resurrection of Jesus. He says according to the scriptures. What the Apostle Paul is doing here is he's appealing back to a portion of the Bible that we refer to or talk about as the Old Testament. And what he's saying here is that in the Old Testament, there was a, a sense in which the people of God, the nation of Israel, were waiting for one to come who would rescue and redeem uh, their, th- themselves, God's people. They were waiting for what we call a Messiah, a Savior. And there were all these prophecies about what this Messiah would be like, what he would do, where he would live, how, how he would live, how he would die, that he would be resurrected. And there's nearly a thousand Old Testament prophecies about what this Messiah was going to be like, written uh, upwards of 2,000 years before he actually came. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that this man, Jesus, actually was the fulfillment of all of those prophecies. Some of these prophecies were so seemingly insignificant, but so specific that there's, it would be almost impossible for one person to fulfill all of them. Uh, specific like where he would be born, what he would do for a living, how he would die, that he would be resurrected. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is the likelihood that this man, Jesus, would be the fulfillment of all of these prophecies is so small that he must indeed be the Messiah. And then he goes on and he says this in verse 6. He says, after that, he being Jesus, sorry, uh, it says, sorry, verse 5, and then that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. So he was raised according to the scriptures, and then he appeared to this man Cephas, also known as Paul, and to the twelve. Now now here's what's interesting about what Jesus is saying here. I want you to think about this for a second because this is indeed important. He's saying that Jesus rose and then people saw him. So here's what we need to understand about the resurrection of Jesus. This wasn't a metaphorical resurrection. This wasn't as some people would argue or some people would contend, even in churches, some of the churches that maybe you've been to, that that this was like Jesus rose metaphorically or he rose in your heart. This was a physical, flesh and bones, literal resurrection. This was the body of Jesus. They saw him. They encountered him. Now, Paul cites two people or two groups here that he went to. The first one is Cephas. This is Peter. And the second one is the 12, talking about the 12 disciples. Now, here's what's interesting about these guys. Prior to the resurrection of Jesus, if you go back and look over the Passion Week, the week leading up to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and then even the weekend where all of this occurred, here's what you're going to see. Between the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, these men were all a bunch of little sissies. And I don't mean like, you know, like, they were just weenies. That's better. That's better than sissies, right? That's more culturally appropriate, weenies, whatever. They were terrified. So so after Jesus went to the cross, you know, they were hiding because they were scared that something bad was going to happen to them. In fact, uh, as Jesus was being tried and as he was being crucified, there were three times where Peter actually denied Jesus, where he was asked, do you know this man? He's like, no, I don't know who he is. I ain't with him. He ain't my guy. I'm not on that team. They were terrified. But if you follow their life and if you, you know, follow their ministry and you follow the way things went, here's what ends up happening. These guys actually become courageous. Uh, These guys are willing to go to jail for preaching about Jesus. These guys are willing to, to literally take beatings, and all of them, every single one of them faced imminent death, and were actually killed for preaching about Jesus, for planting churches in the name of Jesus, and for worshiping Jesus. In fact, Peter went so far as to uh, when he was going to be killed, and they were going to crucify him, to mock him, because they wanted him to be crucified in the same way that Jesus was killed. And here's what he said. He said, I'm unworthy of dying like my Savior. Crucify me upside down. Now, what happened? What happened? What happened to these men that they went from being cowards to being courageous for the sake of Jesus? They saw him. Friends, they saw him. They touched him. They walked with him. They talked to him. They heard him teach they knew what Paul wants us to know, that he is indeed God, that he is indeed raised, that he did indeed die on the cross in your place for your sins, and that by putting your faith in him, you indeed could have faith with the living God. And they were willing to die for it. And some of us would Say, if you're maybe a skeptic here or you got dragged here by your mom because she promised you a turkey dinner or something, and so you're just keeping the family peace, right? You're keeping the peace by being here. Like, well, they probably just made it up. This would be the stupidest religion to ever make up. Like, if I was going to make up a religion, you know, and I'm not calling out any specific religions, but I'd go for, like, the ones with the multiple wives or the 40 virgins in heaven, you know, something like that. This is a dumb one. Because this one promises that you are going to live a poor life, that you are going to have no fame, that you are not going to have any notoriety, and it calls you to death and suffering. So either these guys were sadistic and decided to make up a religion that was self-inflicting pain upon themselves, or they actually believed. And then some of us would say, well, yeah, people die for you know, things that aren't true all the time, but I don't know anybody that dies for something that they made up. I mean, if they just made it up, wouldn't they have just recanted rather than lose their life? Some of them were boiled alive. Some of them were skinned and fed to animals, crucified. Like, this isn't like going to the fair, you know? Aren't you at that point going, oh, just joking. You know, we did it because we wanted the matching T-shirts, and now we're out. That's not what they did. They went to their death. And Paul goes on, says this in verse 6. After that, he then appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. So Paul says, okay, so they uh, Jesus was raised. He appeared to, to Peter. He appeared to the 12. Now, that's like the insider group, right? So if there is going to be a lie, those are the guys that are going to lie about it. But it wasn't just those guys. There were some other guys and some other gals. Look, at, he says, 500 of them. Now again this is Paul's way of saying like I get it like this is like a weird thing to say that a guy died and came back to life but I want I want you to know it actually happened. So so go check it out. Like some of these guys are still alive. You could actually just go talk to them. I mean obviously not now but in the first century. And first century Palestine eyewitness testimony was was actually the most reliable way of doing history. That was the best kind of evidence you could have in the first century was eyewitness testimony. And so the Apostle Paul is not like skirting the issue. He's he's not just saying believe or else. He's he's not saying check your brain at the door. He's saying, I actually want you to do your homework here and check into this thing because these guys are still alive. Now, now if, if 500 people, roughly, were were still alive who had seen the resurrected Christ or let's... Frame it like this: who actually knew that this was a lie? Wouldn't this have like died out somewhere? Probably. But the church grew from 120 to what is now 2.2 billion people. At that time, the church exploded with growth. Why? Because people knew that this event actually occurred. And some people have argued: well, it was probably just a mass hallucination. But, again, this is a, this is, we're, not, we're not talking about, like, seeing Jesus' face on a grilled cheese sandwich or something, right? Like, we're talking about a physical, literal resurrection. I mean, it, these guys aren't, like, in Fernwood at the brownie shop, you know, all doing the same stuff. This is, this is, like, this would be a tough one to cover up. Paul's saying, if you don't believe me, just go ask. Go look around. And then this might be the most compelling evidence. Look at what he says in verse 7. Then he appeared to James. Now, who was James? James was the brother of Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question. What would it take for you to worship your brother or your sister as God? I got four kids, and we can't get them to take our dog out to go to the bathroom without them killing each other, let alone worship one of them as God. And yet, here's James, the brother of Jesus, was at one point a skeptic. If you go back in the life and ministry of Jesus in the Gospels, he's now a worshiper of him. Wrote a book of the Bible, planted churches, preached sermons, calling people to worship the resurrected Christ, and even went to his death claiming that Jesus Christ was Lord and was raised. And then look at what look at what Paul says next. And last last of all, verse 9, or verse 8, sorry, last of all, he appeared to me, talking about himself, talking about the Apostle Paul, as to one who was abnormally born. If you know the story of the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul was actually instrumental in the crucifixion of Jesus. He was hostile to the gospel. He was hosp- hostile to Jesus. He was hostile to the church. He was hostile to Jesus' followers. Uh, he, he wasn't... He, he wasn't just, you know, ambivalent or apathetic. He was actually actively trying to suppress the church from growing. If people were coming to faith in Jesus, the Apostle Paul was trying to get them put into prison or killed. This is what he did. And then something happened. In the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9, the Apostle Paul has this experience. This is what he describes as, uh, he says here, um, as to one abnormally born. He has this experience or this encounter whereby he actually sees, physically sees, the resurrected Jesus. And he's changed and he's transformed. He goes from persecuting uh, Christians to planting churches. He goes from murdering Christians to preaching Christian sermons. Uh, He goes from beating Christians to taking beatings for the sake, for the name of Jesus. He's written... Uh, wrote rather much of the New Testament and is one of the most influential followers of Jesus who has ever lived. What happened to him? He had an encounter. He had an encounter with Jesus. See, it's not enough to just know the facts. It's not enough to just have, uh, you you know, a, a set of historical arguments for why we should believe the resurrection of Jesus, there has to be this sense in which we have an encounter with Him, where we actually see Him and we're changed and we're transformed. This isn't something you can just know your way into. You have to actually come to this place where you see Jesus and you're changed and transformed by Him. And is it possible that this morning could be the morning where you actually have an encounter with the risen Lord? And some of you would say, no, 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 I'm just here to check off some boxes on my religious score sheet. I'm just here to keep the peace with the family. I'm just here because this is what you're supposed to do on holidays like this. The Apostle Paul wasn't looking for Jesus, but Jesus found the Apostle Paul. And is it possible that this morning you're just here, you're not looking for Jesus, but Jesus is actually looking for you? And while he indeed wants you to know things about him, ultimately what he wants you to know is him. And it's Easter morning, and so I'm, I'm a preacher, and so I'm going to ask you to let me do something this morning. I want to plead with you to give your life to Jesus, to put your faith in Jesus, to put your hope in Jesus, to put your trust in Jesus, To see Jesus, to see the resurrected Jesus, and humbly, like the Apostle Paul did, humble yourself, submit yourself, and give yourself over to him. That you too might become one who's abnormally born. What a great day to do that. Easter, the day that you met Jesus, the day that we met Jesus. And so the question we must answer is why does all of this matter? It's where we started. Why does it all matter? We'll look at what the Apostle Paul says. If you have your Bibles, turn over one page. These verses will be up on the screen, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And Paul says a lot about the implications of the resurrection, but I want to hone in on one thing that he says. Here's what he says. When the perishable have been clothed with the imperishable uh, and the mortal with immor- uh, immortality, then the saying is, that is written, will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. In other words, what he's saying is when when you recognize that there's more going on in life than just the physical, what you can taste, see, and touch, when you actually put your faith in the resurrected Jesus. Listen to what he says. This is important. He says death has been swallowed up in victory. That according to the the naturalistic way of viewing the world, that when we all die, they put our bodies in a box, they bury them in the ground, and we just become worm food. But, for those who have placed their faith in Jesus, look at what he says. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? For the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God that he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is saying here is when you place your faith in Jesus, when you become like the Apostle Paul and those before him who are 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 abnormally born, when the the immortality, when the when the natural becomes supernatural, when the Holy Spirit enters into you, when you have this encounter with the, the resurrected Christ, the living Christ, something significant happens. His victory becomes your victory. His life becomes your life. His death becomes your death. And listen to me, friends. Listen. His resurrection becomes your resurrection. The Apostle Paul calls Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection. In other words, he's the one who went first. And those who have placed their faith in Jesus, if you are here this morning and you've placed your faith in Jesus, then just as he rose, you too will one day rise, that death will not have the final word. That sin does not have the final word in our lives, but we walk in the victory of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, the invitation of Easter, the invitation of the Apostle Paul, the invitation of myself, the invitation of Jesus is for all of us to place our faith in him that we would walk in the victory of Christ, that we would look at Jesus and we would see his resurrection as our resurrection, that we would see all the brokenness, all the pain in our world, and we'd recognize that there's nowhere else we can go. Nobody else has the answers. Science doesn't have the answers. New age spiritual gurus don't have the answers. Religion doesn't have the answers. But Jesus Christ resurrected Lord and Savior has the answers. Amen? I'm going to invite the band to come up. And as they come up, I want to close by asking a question. How then do we respond? How then do we respond to this? If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, how do you respond to this? There's a couple things that I want to say we we'll are got to weigh this out, right? Apostle Paul makes a claim, makes a case. You've got to test that claim. We're not asking you to check your brain at the door. We're not asking you to not think. We're not asking you to not press into some of the claims that Paul makes, that Jesus makes with regards to the resurrection. There's, there's a sense in which that is the case. But here, here's what I would say to you. That in the same way you want to test the claims of Jesus, that you want to test the claims of the resurrection, that you want to test the claims of the Apostle Paul, you want to, like, we doubt that. I doubt that. It's okay. Where else are you going to go? See, one of the great lies that we believe is that you have to have faith to be a Christian, but you don't have to have faith to believe something else. So what do you believe right now? Like if you're here and you're like, I don't believe any of this. This is hocus pocus. Well, what do you believe? Because you have faith, right? Your faith is like almost like a commodity that you have to place into something. And, and, and do, you, do you give your belief system the same rigor? Do you doubt your doubts? Do you, do you, do you put your, your belief system through the same rigor? Like I just connect to Mother Nature. What does that mean? Why don't you doubt that? Well, it makes me feel good. Well, who cares how you feel? Truth matters. Feelings, eh. I don't feel like doing a lot of things that I got to do. But but there's another reality. So there's this side, right? Facts, got to test the claims, doubt your doubts, what's your faith in. But there's this other side. And that is this, that facts can only get you so far. And you have to decide between you and Jesus what you believe is real, what you believe is true. And so I'm going to ask you, if if you're here, you're not a follower of Jesus, this is all new to you. Here's the ask. Ask Jesus if he's real. Just ask him. In a minute we're going to sing, we're going to take communion, I'll walk us through all that in just a second, but that's your time. Just like the Apostle Paul who was like one abnormally born, that's your time, that's your moment, that's your opportunity to have that encounter with the resurrected Christ. And so I'd invite you to, to ask Jesus to make himself known to you, and I'd invite you to place your faith in him, to put your faith in Jesus. Now, those of us who are here who are Christians, what's our response? It's good news, amen? Amen? So what are we going to do? We're going to sing. We're going to sing our faces off this morning. We're going to worship Jesus. We're going we're to sing about his goodness. We're going to sing about his grace. We're going to sing about the hope that we have because of his resurrection. Why, West Village? Why? Because our God is risen. When we sing to him, he hears us. When we pray to him, he hears our prayers. When we confess our sin to him, he forgives us. Why? Because he is indeed alive. And so we're going to sing to him. The band's going to lead us in some songs. We're going to take communion. And communion is this beautiful picture, this beautiful reminder of the grace that God has given to us in Christ Jesus in going to the cross. Uh, there's going to be two stations, one at the front of each of the rows. And at, the, at each station, there's going to be a cracker and then some wine or juice, whichever you would prefer. And if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, you've placed your faith in Jesus, then we'd invite you to come forward this morning and take communion with us. And communion is this beautiful picture of the body of Christ broken for us and the shed blood of Christ shed in our place for our sins. And so we come forward and we remember that Jesus Christ loves us. We remember that Jesus Christ gave his life for us. And we remember that he has risen from the grave and he will come again. So I want invite you to stand and I'll pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you indeed have risen. We thank you that you indeed are God. We thank you that you indeed are one that we can know, that we can have relationship with, that we can experience, that we can not just know about, but actually have relationship with you, that because of what you've done for us, because of your resurrection, because of of your goodness and your grace, because of your pursuit of lost and wayward children, we can know you. And I pray for us in this moment right now that all of us would have an encounter with you as we sing, as we take communion, as we respond to your goodness, as we respond to your grace, that, Lord, you would pour out your presence upon us. That we would actually encounter the resurrected and risen Lord, we pray. And all God's children said,